Let's turn to God's Word now. We'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. Listen to the Word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Lord, we know that we, each one here, is in need of your presence. We need to hear your voice now in your word, and we pray that you would speak and you would enable us to listen, to understand, to believe, and to be changed by the truth of your word. We pray that you would do this through your spirit and for your own glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening our sermon comes from 1 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, all the way to 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. So that's 1 Samuel 6 uh, through 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 chapter 7, verse 2. It's a longer passage, and as we read, 
I want us all to think about uh, how the Philistines and the Israelites respond to God's presence with them. I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind. How are the people in this passage responding to God's presence with them? Let's start in verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows in which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering, that send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. The men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. 
and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. <clears throat> I know it's a long passage. The short summary of the passage is this. The ark of the Lord comes home. God chooses to return to his people. But have the Israelites changed? That's one of the key questions. Have they finally understood how to live in God's holy presence? They abused God's presence by treating the ark like a lucky charm and trying to guarantee God's help in battle, and they suffered God's judgment as a result. And the Israelites have had a chance now to watch from afar as God has judged the Philistines for their own sins of mistreating God and his ark. So have the Israelites learned their lesson yet? Well, we see in this passage, not really. They don't even really know where to start. We see the attempts of the Philistines and the attempts of the Israelites to deal with God's holy presence in this passage are actually pointing us forward to the work of Christ. Uh, In both cases, we see that people can come up with lots of our own ways of trying to be right with a holy God, but the only way that we can be right with God is the way that God himself has provided for us, which is Christ. So what we see tonight is that we are able to be in God's holy presence only through God's gracious work in Christ. We are able to be in God's holy presence only through God's gracious work in Christ. See, three points together this evening. We'll see escaping God's wrath in verses 1 through 9. We'll see responding to God's return in verses 10 to 18. And we'll see respecting God's holiness in verses 19 into chapter 7. So first we see the escaping God's wrath, verses 1 to 9. So the story opens, we see the Philistines have had enough of God's presence. That the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And remember what's happened. During that time, God defeated their god, Dagon, and he has brought death to their cities. And now the Philistines are desperate for God to leave. And they realize that the only way that's going to happen is if they return the ark of the Lord to Israel. That that part of the story is probably very obvious to us as well. God has judged the Philistines for how they treated him and how they treated the symbol of his presence, which is the ark. And they need to send the ark back home. But what stands out in this passage is that they send the ark back and they try to atone for their sins. Their attempts at atonement run through the entire passage. Notice what the priests and diviners recommend. Verse 3, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. The Philistines recognize that they must provide a guilt offering. They are trying to pay for their sins. A guilt offering means that they are admitting that they have sinned and they are trying to make things right with God again. 
And the Philistines know that it's only when they do both of those things, return the ark and provide a guilt offering, it's only when they do both of those things that they will be healed and know why God has continued to afflict them. But that raises an obvious question. Now, what kind of guilt offering? Well, we see the answer in verse 4. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. That, uh, that sounds like kind of a weird offering to give to God. But, but the offering fits God's particular judgment on them. We've already seen the tumors in chapter 5. And in verse 5 of this chapter, we learn that God has also sent mice to ravage the land of the Philistines. You can understand the Philistines' thinking here. Remember, the Philistines don't have the Bible. Right? They don't actually know what sacrifices God requires of them. So they do their best to come up with a solution to appease God. And even though the Philistines get the details of the atonement God requires very, very wrong, they do understand a few important things about this offering. It has to be a costly offering, for instance. Each object that they send back to Israel is made of gold. Atonement has to cost something. And they also understand that part of the purpose of this guilt offering is to bring glory to God. It says it specifically in verse 5, the golden tumors and the golden mice give glory to the God of Israel. And these give glory to God because the Philistines are making a memorial of sorts, right? The offering is a physical, permanent reminder that God has been at work. When someone looked at those golden tumors or golden mice in the future, when he looked at them, he would be reminded of God's powerful judgment on the Philistines. There are many examples, actually, in the Old Testament of these kinds of physical reminders of God's work. Uh, there's the pile of stones next to the Jordan to remember God parting the Jordan River before the people of Israel. We'll see in this chapter and also in the next, a stone that is set up to commemorate God's work. But what's striking in our passage is that it's the Philistines, not God's people. It's the Philistines who are acknowledging God's work in a costly way. This connects to what we saw last week. God will be glorified by the nations. But do the Philistines really believe what they are doing? The reason I ask that is because they decide to test God. Look at verses 7 to 9. <clears throat> Here's the instructions. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows in which there's never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Um, this is a test. This is a test of God that would be very easy to fail. You know, I don't know much about animals, but I do know that almost all cows who have never pulled a cart before 
and still have young calves back in the barn would not pull the cart all the way to Beth Shemesh. That's actually the whole point of the test. The Philistines are trying to set God up to fail. Now, why are they testing God? Why are they testing God? Well, we see again the depth of their unbelief as they do this. Surely, they have enough evidence to convince the most hardened Philistine skeptic that God has been judging them. Do you really believe, verse 9, that they could ever conclude that this just happened by coincidence? They have the facts. And yet, they still put God to the test to make sure. So we see the Philistines' unbelief as they test God, and we also see God's patience, because remarkably, he decides to show, to show the Philistines one last time that he is sovereignly in control by passing their test. God is patient with his own people when they do similar things. Gideon is famous for testing God as well. You remember the way Gideon tests God with a fleece? One of the takeaways is don't take Gideon as your role model. Don't test God. What's amazing, God is patient with his people, but God shows the Philistines the same kind of patience that he shows to some of his own people like Gideon who doubt him. And why God chooses to do this is to bring more glory to himself, to prove again to the Philistines that he is in control. So the ark is on its way home. That's where we turn secondly as we see responding to God's return in verses 10 to 18. Everything about the plan goes smoothly. The cows walk straight to Beth Shemesh, and the Philistine lords who follow them now have undeniable proof that it was the Lord who had been afflicting them for seven long months. We don't know much more about how the Philistines responded now that God was safely back in Israel and away from them. But that's actually part of the point of the passage. All that we do know is that the five lords of the Philistines saw everything that happened and returned home to Ekron. These Philistines never responded to God in faith. They go right back to worshiping Dagon and are thankful for their restored health. We could say that they are very thankful for escaping the consequences of their sin, but they do not turn away from their sin to worship and serve God. Isn't it sad when you see someone treat God this way? I've certainly seen it. When God seems to have gotten someone's attention, maybe through a serious illness or a scare in their life, or maybe they realize the consequences of their sin. And for a while, it seems like they've gotten the message and they may actually turn to God in repentance and faith. But then they go back to their old ways. They go back to their old sins. And when we see that, we see God is so patient. He is so patient, but he is also not a God to be ignored. And the Philistines here and the people that we know who have done this as well are only adding to their own guilt when they walk away from God. But thankfully, thankfully, this is not how the Israelites respond. 
They respond to God's return much better than the Philistines. In verse 13, the men of Beth Shemesh rejoice to see the ark. They are glad that God's covenant presence with his people has come back. God has returned to his people. They could have been indifferent. They could have been bitter. You know, why didn't God help us when we needed him? Or, you know, where has he been all this time? This has been a long seven months without God. But that's not how they respond. They respond with true joy. And they also respond with worship. In verses 14 to 15, we see that they take the wood of the cart to make a fire, and they offered up the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. Don't miss the significance of what they are doing. They are showing we are God's people, and they're showing that by worshiping him again. So they respond with joy, and they respond with worship, and they also respond in obedience. It's easy to miss this little detail, but look again at verse 15. And the Levites took the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. The only people who handle the ark are the Levites. It turns out that Beth Shemesh was one of the towns of the Levites. You can see it in Joshua 21. So there were actually men present that day to whom God had given the specific role of taking care of the ark of God. Remember, it's the Levites who are responsible for transporting the ark and the other holy items from the tabernacle. See that in Numbers chapter 4. Pay attention here how the action of the Levites stands in sharp contrast to the actions of David and of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. That's the next time that the ark really gets moved. In that passage, in 2 Samuel 6, the people take the ark by cart, and Uzzah is killed for touching the ark. But here in 1 Samuel 6, it looks like the Israelites are following God's law in the way that they treat the ark. So the Israelites of Beth Shemesh, they respond with joy and worship and obedience when God returns. But everything is not as good as it seems. And that leads us to our third and final point, respecting God's holiness. Turn a sharp corner between verses 18 to 19. Look at 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The people of Beth Shemesh sin and God brings immediate dramatic judgment. And the sin of the people is directly related to God's holiness. You see their sin in verse 9. They looked upon the ark of the Lord. And these men probably didn't look inside the ark, like pick up the lid and look inside. That's how some translations will phrase this. But even looking at the ark of the Lord was enough to bring God's judgment. I pointed us back to Numbers 4 already. The Levites were the only ones who were supposed to carry the holy things of the tabernacle. But before the Levites could pick up the ark or anything else in the tabernacle, the priests had to cover the items. And God says, Numbers 4, verse 20, But the Levites shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. God's point 
was that ordinary people could not look on the holiness of God and live. That seems like a radical view of the holiness of God. Is he really that holy so that he kills men who even look at the uncovered ark at Beth Shemesh? Yes, he is. We see that all the way through scripture. We see the holiness of God. Remember Isaiah and Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 6 says he comes into God's presence. He realizes even as a great prophet of God, even as a holy man, he recognizes that he is a sinner and he falls down recognizing that he should not be in the presence of God. We see all the way through Scripture the holiness of God that the people of Beth Shemesh experience again. And after all this has happened, as they are reminded of the holiness of God, the men of Beth Shemesh ask the right question. Verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's one of the greatest questions of the entire Bible. From Eden onward, the question has always been, how can sinful men be in the presence of a holy God? It's not just the Israelites who are asking that question. The Philistines were essentially asking a similar question. How can we be right with God? How can we atone for our sins in the presence of God? So this question is not just a question of the Bible. It is the question of every human being. How can a sinful man or a sinful people be in the presence of a holy God? But the way that the men of Beth Shemesh ask that particular question gives away the answer. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord? Right? They're using God's covenant name, the Lord. And that points us to the answer that the Bible consistently gives. Sinful men can be with a holy God because God makes a way for us to be with him. That's part of the very idea of the covenant, that God chooses a people and he begins a relationship with us. And at the heart of our covenant with God stands Jesus Christ and his work for us because We break our side of the covenant all the time. But Jesus Christ has stood in our place and he's received the curses of breaking the covenant, the curses that we deserve, right? He has received the wrath of God. He went through the cursed death on the cross so that we can now stand in God's holy presence. This is our great gospel hope. But sadly, the men of Beth Shemesh don't seem to have shared it. It's true, the men of Beth Shemesh, they were looking forward to Jesus. They had only the shadows, the types like the sacrifices that they just offered, and the ark that was right in front of them. They had pictures of the gospel. But notice the hopelessness of their question. The hopelessness of their question reveals how little they understood of God's grace to them in Christ. They ask this question, how can we stand in God's presence? They ask that question without really expecting that God has provided a way for them to be with him again. And that hopelessness leads them to ask their next question, and to whom shall he go up away from us? 
They want to get rid of God. Their reaction is remarkably similar to the reaction of the Philistines that we saw in 1 Samuel 5 and in 1 Samuel 6. Get God away from here. They view the blessing of God's presence as a curse. And so they send the ark away. They send it up to Kiriath-Jerim. 20 years passes before anything else happens. And during that time, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The hopelessness of one town was bad, but this is the hopelessness of an entire nation. Israel is God's presence again, but they aren't able to enjoy it. They don't know how to enjoy being in God's presence again. And their lament, the lament of all Israel, is very similar to what the men of Beth Shemesh said. How can we be right with God? How can we be with a holy God? We'll see the answer in chapter 7. Later in chapter 7, when Israel recommits itself to the Lord with Samuel's help. But already in the beginning of chapter 7, we have the beginning of hope. Because the men of Kiriath-Jerim treat the ark of the Lord with reverence. They treat God as holy. You'll notice they consecrate a kind of priest named Eleazar. And they gave him the one job. Have charge of the ark of the Lord. And in those long 20 years of waiting, as Eleazar tended the ark, no one else dies. I want you to notice that. No one else dies. Chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 have been full of death. You know, at first the Israelites did not treat God as holy, and they were judged. And then the Philistines did the same, and they were judged. And then the Israelites did the same again at Beth Shemesh, and they were judged. But no one dies while the ark is at Kiriath-Jerim. And we see there in that very simple fact, at least some of the people of Israel have begun to learn the lesson of God's holiness. That was a lesson for Israel to learn, and we need to learn that lesson as well as God's people today. Our God is a consuming fire. He is not someone to be messed with. He is not someone to be mistreated. He is a consuming fire. And he also commands us to be holy as he himself is holy, to be cut off from sin and to be dedicated to himself. When we see the holiness of God and we see what he has called us to be, we can see that there is a true godly fear that should characterize us as we serve our holy God. There is a good godly fear that should mark every Christian and every true church. But there is also thankfulness, everlasting thankfulness, because we look at ourselves and we see our own sin and we realize that we shouldn't be standing in God's presence if it depended on us. Maybe you've had that feeling at times in your life when you've had a good look at your own sin and you realize there is no right that I have to be in God's presence. But remember, when God looks at you, when God looks at me, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees you and he sees me not dressed in the rags of our sin, no, but standing in the spotless white robes of Christ's righteousness. 
That is the beauty of what Christ has done for us. That now we are justified like that. We are able to stand in God's presence. And now we are being sanctified. And one day we'll be made perfect when we are glorified. We are declared righteous and we are being made righteous so that we can be in God's presence forever. But we're in God's presence right now too. Isn't it an amazing thought that Sunday by Sunday, we stand in God's presence because God graciously calls us into his presence to worship him. He, he welcomes us in. And we are able to be here through the work of Jesus, our great high priest. We read about it from the book of Hebrews. Jesus has opened that new and living way into the presence of our living God. We experience that now as we come to worship. And even though you and I will walk out that door in a few minutes when worship is done, we never fully leave God's presence. We can't do that because as Paul says, we are actually seated in the heavenly places in Christ right now and at every moment of our lives. You and I have one foot firmly planted in heaven in the presence of God. Part of what that means is that we always have full access to our heavenly Father. And because he sees us in Christ, he will never, ever throw us out. He will never turn us away. He will never make us leave. We are in God's holy presence. The reason we're there is because of the work of Christ. Isn't the work of Christ so amazing for each and every one of his children? Think about that question again. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The amazing answer of the Bible is that we are. We are able to do that, not because we're so great, not because we're so holy, not because we're perfect, but because God is great, because God is holy, because God is perfect, and he has graciously provided a way for sinners like us to spend an eternity in his holy presence in his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would learn that very amazing lesson of the gospel, that you are a holy God, you cannot stand sin, and yet, through Jesus Christ, you have paid for our sins, and you welcome us now to stand in your presence to worship you and to serve you, because you have provided the way in Jesus Christ, you've given us the righteousness that we require, and you will make us holy, just like you are. Lord, we thank you for what a great privilege it is to be your children and to be in your presence. And Lord, as we rejoice in this, we pray again with boldness that you would do this for so many others around us. Lord, please be gracious and merciful and kind and call others to believe in you and to join us as we rejoice to be in your presence now and for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.